Hello and welcome back to the Bridging the Gap podcast. I think it was about uh, a month ago. It was probably a month ago we promised a podcast <laughs> exploring um, creation, things about creation. Yeah, I think it was about then that you promised a podcast, Dave, yeah. Okay, it was me, yeah. It's a shame on me. Um, <laughs> so what we're going to do today, we have um, two men, one of them's already introduced himself, Um who are going to help us think about creation and evolution and science. And my role is basically, as someone who is very uninformed about these things, is to ask some questions and let the, I'm going to call you both experts, experts do the talking. Um, One expert. (laughs) One expert. So we have Matt with us and Emir with us. So I'm going to dive straight in. To the first question. This first section is a lot of sort of if someone said this, and I get there are questions that we think people often ask. So hopefully they're sort of FAQs on science, creation, evolution, the Bible, and how it all sort of overlaps and fits together. So here's here's the first one to kick us off. If someone said, I actually think I've said this um before, so um guilty on this one. The Bible says God created the world in six days. That's good enough for me. No need to look any further into it. So would you persuade someone to reconsider that and to look into this stuff more? Why why what what's gone right there with that statement and what would you yeah. sort of push back on? Uh, well, first thing to say, I think, is that there's a really good heart response, isn't it, in the middle of that statement. If the Bible says it, that's good enough for me. And there's a real sense in which that's the way we should think as Christians. I'd want to encourage that basic attitude in all of us. But I would also hope that all Bible-believing Christians would want to say that um, they they're, they want to be clear on what the Bible says. So, yeah, we'd all agree if the Bible says it, that's good enough. The question is, what is it that the Bible is saying? Are we seeking to understand it correctly mm. on its own terms, not on our terms? So whatever position we hold on the six days um, of creation or on evolution, we should always be going back to Scripture to ensure that we're reading God's word prayerfully and in context. Um, that we aren't holding our view just because someone else holds this view or because we've always held it. Um, if I were chatting to a Christian friend who's got a different understanding of the meaning of the six days or different understanding of whether evolution of some sort has played a part, I shouldn't immediately write off their view as unscriptural, but I should be charitably considering it in the light of the Bible, continue to think highly of them if they're seeking to do the same. So it's not so much about trying to persuade others to change their positions for me, um, though we may try and do that in a friendly and gracious way. It's more about encouraging each other to keep going back to the Bible uh, and to to listen well okay so the heart is good there the sort of the almost childlike faith isn't it if the, god's word says it i trust him and that's that should be our attitude with all scripture that we come to um and i suppose why i like there matt was you said about you know don't assume the worst in someone who has a different view from you which is often something we do isn't it so like any text though we want to understand it better so emir how do you see science and scripture overlapping or informing one another well when you're trying to deal with this understanding of science and the bible it's important to recognize that science involves the study of god's creation mm. of course you've got to remember it's carried out by fallen human beings mm. it's god's creation it's his revelation to the whole world as psalm 19 expresses so we should 
we should really expect agreement in the long term between God's revelation in his creation and in his infallible word. Mm. And in the meantime, we need to show a fair bit of patience. But in dealing with a particular topic where scripture and science overlap, it's important to ask ourselves with regards to both our understanding of scientific theories and in our interpretation of scripture, where we pitch it on a spectrum of interpretation on the scale, what I find most helpful is, is it certain, is it reasonable, or is it speculative? And where would we put it on that spectrum? And when we've done that for both our interpretation of scripture and of scientific questions, we then compare. Um, some scientific theories are very well founded and been used for decades to explain so much data, develop new technologies, etc. But others are far less certain and some are extremely speculative. We also need to be careful with our interpretation of scripture, though we know it's God's infallible word. For instance, Genesis 1 is a revelation from God's spirit as an eyewitness. It says that he was... Uh, moving on the surface of the waters, um, from a period before mankind was on earth. So we need to be aware uh, from other parts of scripture, including the last few chapters of the Bible, that when we're dealing with revelation, we do need to be careful interpreting details, details such as timescales. Um, that's not giving a detailed answer to the question of timescales, but uh, just outlining some important principles we need to keep in mind when you're dealing with areas of overlap between science and scripture. Yeah, that, that's helpful. Whenever whenever I think of that answer you've just given, I sort of think of Hope Explored, where Rico uh, is talking about looking into the evidence about the Lord Jesus. So in your answer there, you said, God's word is king. But he's also given us evidence in the world to study and to inform our interpretation of the Genesis account. So we will ultimately see overlap between scientific study and the scriptures, because that's the way God's designed this world. Which does bring me on to my next question on evolution as a whole, where some people say that Christians have compromised because they want science and the Bible to fit together. And I'm... I'm I'm almost certain you've been asked this question in quite a probably hostile way. So the, the question would be something like, surely talking about evolution at all is compromise. Like we've completely given in to the spirit of the age of this. Would, would you agree or disagree? Like what happens if we, you know, just don't even engage or look at evidence in this area? Yeah, well... I don't see it necessarily as a compromise to take the view that God used evolution in creating life. I know many Christians who believe that God has used evolution, macroevolution as well as microevolution in terms of processes. I feel we need to be careful not to go further than the Bible allows. See, in the Old Testament, the Bible is clear that God uh, sends lightning, he controls the rainfall, he sets the limits of the sea, all by his word. And yet for each of these, we can say that there are natural processes of electrostatics, condensation, and the effect of gravity in a volume of water. There are processes that, uh, that are responsible in a sense. The fact that God acts by his word doesn't exclude possible mechanisms. Um, so on that basis, I'd say we can't 
on the purely on the basis of Genesis one, exclude evolution as a mechanism. Having said that we can't rule it out, my own view is that I can't see how life could have started from just chemistry on the early Earth. And further, I'm of the opinion that natural selection has played a relatively minor part rather than a major part in shaping life. As someone said years ago, it seems to explain the survival of the fittest, not necessarily the arrival of the fittest. <laughs> um, but I do see evidence for change often comparatively sudden in the fossil record over an extended a long period of time. Mm. I believe it to be an open question, which is not entirely understood how that change happened. Okay, so what I've, I think I've understood there, um, as quite a novice, but what, what I think I understood from that was we can believe in evolution, but there's a limit to how far we can go with this. So you've studied and looked into these things in great detail and you see evidence for some form of evolution. And that doesn't mean that wasn't in God's sovereign control. So, Matt, would you like to add anything to that? <laughs> I just want a few things I could say. This gives me the problem when I follow Emir, when it's uh, touching on the, the scientific theory. Um, a lot of it's just going to be confirming I agree. But um, I, I, yeah, I'd say as well, I, I don't believe that a Christian holding to a form of evolution is necessarily compromising at all i know many committed and sincere bible believing christians who've wrestled with what scripture authoritatively says and with the findings of scientists and they've concluded that god used a process of large-scale what, what i called macro evolution some sort to achieve the, his glorious creation goals i i'm uh, not convinced by that understanding myself either but i i don't deny it can be sincerely held by someone who's seeking to submit to scripture of course i mean the flip side to that is it can be a compromise in a bad sense if we accept a position hook, line, and sinker without asking what does Scripture say. But Christians of any viewpoint can be in danger of compromising in a bad way. I think that's the point. Yeah. yeah if I could just add in here possibly another example, which is not as controversial, but just to illustrate the, the principles involved. Um, science answers the question of how did I come to be who I am in terms of a seemingly random race between billions of sperm. <laughs> Do we take the view that this contradicts David's description of God having knit him together in his mother's womb? Or do we accept both descriptions and conclude that God is in sovereign control of that race? Mm. And Christians can often argue that God doesn't use random processes. Well, if who we are, each of us, can be viewed as the uh, seemingly random race between sperm. Mm. Um, to, it, it seems to me just slightly inconsistent to say that God simply doesn't use random processes and use that as an argument against evolution. Yeah. It's an interesting question to reflect on. <clears throat> yeah, and that's such a brilliant example, isn't it? To think about how God is using these random processes, such as you know, billions of sperm, and yet, he also knit us together in our mother's womb. And ultimately, you know, for Jesus to come from the line of David, descended from Abraham, from Adam, it's God's sovereign control over all things, even seemingly random things. And this next question, I'm, I'm going to be honest, it does baffle me a wee bit, but I will ask it because obviously people have this viewpoint. If someone said, we don't need to believe in a literal Adam and Eve, how would you respond to that question? 
Well, I think something Emma said um, just a few minutes ago, so it's, it's really helpful to apply in a slightly different way, you know, in terms of it, uh, whether our interpretations of scripture are certain or you know, pretty uncertain or somewhere in, in between. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's similar in terms of how important certain uh, doctrines are in the Christian life. So the, the, the resurrection, for example, of Jesus is right at the center of the gospel. Mm. If someone doesn't believe that, that is a major problem. Yeah. Um, and then you've got a kind of a sliding scale as to how important things are. And I think that kind of applies to this question because someone can, of course, be a Christian and I think, and hold to Adam and Eve not being historical individuals. If I'm speaking to someone who doesn't believe Adam and Eve were historical individuals, I'm not going to say oh, that person can't be a Christian because that belief is not core to the gospel. It doesn't direct the impact on whether someone believes that Jesus is the son of God who rose from the dead. If you don't believe those core truths, then that's a salvation issue. And I think someone can love the Bible as God's infallible word and hold to that view as well. But, so here's the but. (laughs) Um, I would say that if a Christian holds to the idea that Adam and Eve weren't historical individuals, they need to consider the biblical problems associated with that view. So I'd argue it's not just that they've not read Genesis 1 and 2 in context, but also the fact that scripture elsewhere assumes that they were real historical individuals. Adam appears in biblical genealogies, um, for example, in 1 Chronicles, um, Luke 3, they treat Adam as historical. Paul builds his understanding of the working out of our salvation on us being either in Adam or in Christ. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5. And that understanding that Paul has there breaks down if Adam wasn't a flesh and blood individual in whom we fell and sinned because he was the representative head of the human race. So it's very problematic, I'd say, not to see Adam and Eve were the first historical flesh and blood humans. As with the six days, you know, this isn't a litmus test of someone's spirituality at all. But I do think this is one of the clear and key truths that's important to hold on to whether we believe in a literal creation week or creation over long periods or theistic evolution. Yeah, I agree with everything Matt said. And just to add, um, in Hebrews 11, of course, Abel is is mentioned as an example of faith. So surely we need to view Abel as a historical person. And it's just difficult for me to hold that a historical person had figurative parents. Yeah. And even Jesus, whenever he talks about marriage, he talks about at the beginning, he gave man and woman. I so maybe maybe I'm a bit more extreme than both of you, but I feel like that is really shaky ground, like a, a Jenga tower. Like if you remove a historical Adam and Eve, like surely you then just start picking and choosing yeah. what mm-hmm. what comes next. But I suppose as you say, it's not a central issue, but I feel like it's one of those key pillars of yeah. I just feel like it's a slippery slope, but. Um, to sort of move on more on the creation evolution sort of topics, this might seem like quite an obvious question to be asking to a professor of science, but um, is Genesis written as a scientific textbook? Well, clearly not really. Um, I mean, it's God's revelation to all mankind. Hmm. It's written in an accessible language so that all of us can understand it reasonably. And I suspect that if it was actually written and meant as a scientific textbook, I'm not sure we'd still understand much of it. (laughs) Now, I think a key point here is that uh, it also describes everything, not only in accessible language, 
but from our human earthbound perspective. Mm. For instance, it describes the sun going around the earth as we view it. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm. Um, science describes everything from some kind of external abstract perspective, looking in on a system from outside. And in that way, we see the earth as turning around the sun. Mm. Uh, but recognizing this difference, both in the type of language and in the perspective from which things are described, is crucial in comparing Genesis 1 with scientific theories. The Holy Spirit, as the eyewitness in Genesis 1, and acting in a sense as God's site manager, mm -hmm. is hovering over the surface of the waters. He tells us the vantage point from which the events are described, as any good eyewitness would. And of course, he is also the uh, site manager for the new creation too, and the way that he works mm -hmm. in each of our lives. Yeah, that's a brilliant image, isn't it? The Holy Spirit as the site manager. Oh, okay, yeah. Matt, any any additions to that? Is Genesis written as a scientific textbook? Well, uh, I agree with what Emir said. Uh, we should always seek to understand God's word in the context of how it was originally written and understood. And whilst it does touch on matters that interest contemporary scientists, it wasn't written for them. It was mm. written for the people of Israel and for all humankind. To make the points that we thought about in our first few sermons on Genesis, that when we look at creation, we can say God did this. So Genesis 1 is primarily about who made the world and why he made the world. It's not a book that speaks primarily of the how, the process. Mm -hmm. And that's what would be of primary interest to a science text. So that's my layperson's way of agreeing completely with what mm -hmm. Emir just said. Yeah. Um, it's a similar sort of question. So not written as a scientific textbook. Is it written as a historical book? My answer would be yes, it's absolutely an historical book. But we need to remember that it's not a 21st century style history book or a 20th century style history book. The, the vast bulk of Genesis, when you read it in context, seems very clearly to be written as a recounting of historical events as they happened. Mm. So when you, you read the repeated phrase in Genesis, these are the generations of, that ties all the sections together as speaking of historical individuals like mm. Adam, Noah, Abraham, uh, and so on. But it's not necessarily written in the way that a modern historian would write. Um, for example, it's probable that generations are missed out in the genealogies, which a modern historian wouldn't do unless they flagged that up anyway. Yeah. And when you look at the first section of Genesis, it's speaking of the very beginnings of the history of our cosmos. You know, Emir mentioned that there's no human witness. It's the Holy Spirit who's there as the site manager. Mm. But this had to be revealed directly to Moses it's a unique phase of history, um, pre-humans, pre-plants, pre-animals, pre-seas, pre-stars. Yeah. So it's no surprise that it's also a rather different type of literature, I'd argue, than Genesis 2, verse 4 onwards. It's organically connected to it, yes, written by the same author, speaking of things that happen in space and time but not necessarily in the same way as the rest of Genesis does. So that's why I think it's possible for Bible-loving Christians to have different views of the six days and not necessarily be compromising in doing so. But we would all basically agree that, yes, this is an historical book describing things that took place in space and time. Yeah. So would it be, it's almost like Genesis 1 is the wide angle camera lens and then it zooms in for Genesis 2 onwards in some ways. Yeah, that slows down. Yeah, so... I can imagine as well. I, I can imagine someone two thousand years from now reading some of our history textbooks and being like, "This isn't the way history is written." And you'd say, "Well, of course not. It's like two thousand years have passed. It's going to be different styles and different generations." 
Amir, what would you like to add? Well, I just say yes, it, it is a historical uh, account, mm. um, but not necessarily history as, as we know it. Mm. Um, just to say that five times it's repeated in Genesis 1, the, the refrain, and God said, and then it says, and it was so. Mm. It's describing events that happened. Mm. Now we have to take care in handling it as a revelation of what happened, care with timelines. We have to take care to consider the language and perspective and not to insist on details that may not be clear. But that repeated refrain can't be dismissed. It describes key events that happened in creation. Mm. It is historical, yet not history in the usual sense, as there were no humans around to describe it. Great. So some people would say, Matt, I think this is more sort of your question in some ways, but some people would describe the first chapter, maybe more of Genesis, as a myth. What, what does that idea mean? <laughs> well, the, the difficulty here is that different biblical commentators use that word myth in quite different ways. You know, when I've, over the years, as I've read things written on Genesis, sometimes someone will say it's myth, and I'm like, no, I completely disagree. Mm. Uh, and occasionally, a commentator will use the word myth, and I think, I don't like the word, but I, I think I basically agree what you're saying. So the thing is, though, most commentators, when they use that word myth, use it in the sense of a made-up story to convey a more general truth. And I don't think we can accept it as that, that the text and the rest of scripture is clear that God made the universe and was active in the, the lives of the, the real events, the real people recorded. These aren't made up stories. Mm. Um, but some commentators, as I say, use the word unhelpfully, I think, to try and explain that Genesis 1 is a different type of literature to Genesis 2. Mm. And I'd agree with that up to a point. Uh, I mentioned that in an answer to the previous question. For example, it's, and I mentioned this in my, my sermon on Genesis 1, it's beautifully structured, Genesis 1. It's repetitive in a way that the rest of Genesis isn't. It's, it's, it's got poetry-like aspects to it. But if someone's using the word myth in that way, okay, but I don't think the word myth is helpful there. I wouldn't use the word myth for that because that implies to most people that Genesis 1 doesn't speak of real historical happenings, and it does. So my short version of that is, no, it's not myth. Yeah, and I think that what the idea of myth people are using it as is almost like a parable, like an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So it's not not literal. It's like the story of how the snake lost his legs. Like that's sort of the idea, isn't it? But you're saying, no, that's completely wrong. So we're going to circle back around a wee bit to more thoughts on evolution. So what are Professor Mack's practical principles on this topic? <laughs> Well, um, I'm not a, an expert on, on evolution, um, but uh, I deal far more with, with the origin of life on, on Earth, where I think it's very clear um, that things it could, simply couldn't have started on the early Earth. Mm. But in dealing with the question of evolution, um, firstly, I think it's important to ask what's meant by evolution, because it's used in a variety of senses. You know, the origin of life from chemistry on the early Earth uh, evidence for a change in the fossil record, a theory, usually natural selection, to account for those changes in terms of large scale, as in macroevolution or smaller scale changes, or as a philosophical position that simply assumes there's nothing other than natural processes. Mm. It's very important when you're talking with anyone to actually be, you know, try and clarify what is being discussed. Um, and secondly, I think in discussing with people, um, ask what is the evidence 
and where do presuppositions come in because they do um and thirdly i think just be aware that theories aren't cast in stone uh, as it might appear um there's considerable discussion currently um i've been to uh, scientific conferences discussing as to whether natural selection is sufficient to explain observed changes um uh, there are many people uh, saying that actually we need uh, a new variant on theory. You, you know, these are people who are not Christians, uh, it's just general scientists. I can say a bit more on this if anyone wants to discuss with me at another point. Um, uh, but with regards to the origin of life on the early Earth, um, it's been very interesting to me that scientists have been saying increasingly over the... Uh, uh, last decade or so, that there's a need for new physics to explain how life came about. Um, but I just wonder whether such a statement could be interpreted as a recognition that science as we know it is telling us that life couldn't have started from just simple physics and chemistry on the early Earth. I feel like one of the things I find very helpful in that is it's really important to find out what they mean by evolution so defined terms is obviously really important and that's obvious in lots of different ways if someone says i don't believe in god you have to be you almost have to ask okay what god do you not believe in because it's probably very likely i don't believe in that god either um so i suppose a, a helpful principle is always to define terms and ask questions as the lord jesus often um modeled so we we've talked a wee bit about uh evolution so why can't we accept all of Darwinian evolutionary theory? So wh why do we pick and choose the bits that we like? Well, as I said earlier, the fact that God sends lightning, controls rainfall and sets the limits of the sea by his word doesn't exclude possible mechanisms. Okay. Um, but there's no principle by which I would reject evolutionary theory based on Genesis. Um I, I am simply deeply skeptical of the capability to explain how life came to be as it is, um, that there are pointers in need of a new theory to either expand or replace it. Um, the key area where there are clear issues in relating theory of evolution to Genesis is uh, when you come to the origin of mankind, uh, as we've said. Okay, I see. Matt, anything to add? Well, uh, Bible-believing Christians hold different positions on how much of evolutionary theory they would accept. It's important to say that, isn't it? That it's not that some Christians don't believe in evolution and others do, and that's it. There's two binary positions. Um, for example, Emma's just said how there are aspects of evolutionary theory that he's particularly sceptical of, and he might be less sceptical of others. But you know, to, to answer the question, why can't we accept it all when we look at Darwinian uh, evolutionary theory, I, th I think it's fair to say, and I'm saying this now as a, a lay person who generally reads um, popular level stuff on this, the evolutionary th theory is generally understood by most people today is essentially is a naturalistic theory. It ultimately makes no room for any supernatural agent outside of the closed system of nature. Um, and that's one aspect of evolutionary theory the Bible believer is obviously not going to hold to. Even if they have no trouble with some aspects of evolution, they can't accept that premise that nature is a closed system. There's nothing outside that system, and there are no there's no supernatural agents at work because there are, and that that's that's God. To yeah, to state the most obvious naturalistic theory, 
means there's no God, which mm. just means you can't hold to that position, can you? Mm. Um, so another another question people tend to get very passionate about, um, particularly maybe where I'm from in particular, this happens. Um, does the timeline of events really matter? So another way of asking this question is, is the earth very old or very young? <laughs> I'm laughing because it's a bit of a nasty question. Emily and I were chatting about this off air that I, I've reworked my answer to this several times. Um, you just can't give a short answer to that, can you? Um, does the timeline of events really matter? In one sense, I don't think it matters. It makes <laughs> see, see, I'm you got to let me finish my I'm answer. Just it, it makes, for, and what I mean by that is, it makes no difference to the glory of God and His purposes in creation, salvation, new creation, whether the world is thousands of years old or billions of years old. He could have made the world as we see it in a moment, and actually, Augustine seems to have thought that he did. Hmm. To God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. Um, so in that sense, it doesn't matter whether the earth is old or young. What matters more, I think, is that we are trying to understand Scripture rightly and understand it in context. I know we're always saying that in this podcast, but this is an area where it's just so important. Um, we believe, don't we, that the Bible, being God's word, makes no mistakes in what it affirms as true. But it does speak more directly and clearly about some things than others. So Genesis 1 is very clearly and unambiguously, I would say, claiming that God made the cosmos from nothing and designed and shaped the world we see. I think it's less clear that Genesis 1 is unambiguously recounting straightforward chronological history. A lot of Christians would argue that, but I think it, that's less clear. Um, Genesis 2 verse 4 onwards, as I said earlier, does seem to be recounting straightforward chronological history. So the period over which God created and shaped the world is not as clear and certain as, for example, the historical reality of the creation of Adam and Eve. So having said all that, I don't think it's helpful to be dogmatic about the age of the earth when the Bible doesn't directly speak to that issue. We shouldn't make such things non-negotiables or, as we said previously, litmus tests of someone's spirituality or a test of whether they really trust God's word. In short, Genesis makes no mistakes, but it speaks with differing degrees of directness and clarity about different matters. And I think the old or young earth question is not something that's directly and unambiguously addressed by Genesis. Okay. So like you mentioned by how context is important. I can imagine someone overhearing someone else say, Matt said, it doesn't matter how old the earth is. And you say, well, no, think about the context. It's in a podcast where Matt is talking about how important this is. So context matters. Good illustration. So, for example, um, we can kind of, I, we're not comparing the two things with the Bible and our answers today. But no. yeah. if someone wants to hear my, no, it doesn't matter in context, they need to listen to the whole answer. Yeah. Not just that that sentence. Yeah. And it's the same with our approach to scripture. Yeah. So important. Exactly. Good. Yeah, and this question of the importance of the timeline I can give two contrasting answers depending on who I'm talking to. It's not a fudge or avoiding the issue. <laughs> but let me explain what I mean. When I'm talking with a Christian who is interested in issues surrounding origins, I'd emphasize the principles of interpreting scripture uh, and they're more important than the exact position we come to regarding the age of the earth and related questions. As Matt said, it's not a fundamental issue of faith. I discuss the issues involved without seeking to persuade the person to change their position. This is the approach I would take with the majority of believers. Hmm. 
But I have talked with some students and occasionally older scientists for whom this is a central issue that needs careful handling to prevent a deep crisis of faith. Such people have usually had someone of influence, a parent, a youth worker or pastor, who's insisted that the earth is only a few thousand years old and said that anyone who does not hold that position is unscriptural and choosing to accept what scientists say over the plain teaching of the Bible. Then either at university or later in their scientific career, they have carefully considered the evidence and concluded on the basis of the evidence, not on what scientists say, that the earth is very old. How should they respond? Now this illustrates the principle that we've mentioned a few times. Where science and scripture overlap, it's important to ask ourselves with regards to this scale of certain, reasonable or speculative, where would we pitch it on that spectrum for each question? You see, a literal seven-day creation period appears to be a natural reading of Genesis 1. However, we should also note the points in the text itself that makes this less than conclusive. Firstly, Genesis 1 is a revelation from the Spirit, and we are aware of the care we need to take in interpreting revelation, particularly with regards to timescales. Secondly, Genesis 2 describes a continual upstreaming over an extended period of either water or mist to water the earth before man was on earth. This could, I guess, describe a two-day period between days three and five, but the imperfect tense use suggests a much longer period. Now, thirdly, in the refrain, there was evening and there was morning the first day, the word the is not in the original Hebrew text. In the Hebrew text, it only comes for days six and seven when we humans were on earth. <laughs> so on the certain to reasonable to speculative scale we mentioned, I'd suggest a creation period of seven consecutive 24-hour days is reasonable, but not certain. And the insistence that such students had previously met in a church context on this point had unintentionally set up a later crisis of faith where they had to face up to very strong evidence for an extended age of the earth. See, I, a couple of things I've picked out there is really helpful is when we're in Revelation, we talked about how timelines, dates, ages, we need to carefully interpret them. It's not just what we see on face value. Um, I think as well, I suppose, is very helpful for me, Emir, because I think I would have been, well, even I, I would have been very guilty of being too simplistic or dismissing the issue and saying to a young person, I have no problem with God doing it in six days. That's good enough for me. I have faith. And in that moment, I'm not appreciating that this could be a massive deal for that young person and actually in the future i'm sowing seeds of doubt for later so thank you that's a very loving and thoughtful review can i just yeah. comment on that that you know i know people who will absolutely insist that when you're dealing with the last three chapters of the bible hmm. we should never take time scales literally <laughs> and the same period insist 
<laughs> that when you're dealing with the first three chapters of the Bible, you have to take time scales seriously. <laughs> yeah. Now, they may be right. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not right to insist yeah. on those two positions. Yeah. Yeah. Picking and choosing. Um, so, you know, does it matter? This is another sort of doesn't matter question. Does it matter if we believe they're historical, but that God made them, the human beings, by breathing his life into already evolved already existing hominid creatures so basically the question i think is mm. did he take apes and then breathe yeah. like spirit into them basically see i know the way you frame the question again dave just to make it particularly awkward for us does it matter so like we've got to say yes or no so <laughs> i i'm gonna say um yeah yeah it, it matters to, to a degree but not massively necessary obviously emir can speak to better the scientific evidence side of this but i just say to kick us off that I believe it's more important to see that Adam and Eve are real historical figures than it is to agree on God's process for making them in his image. I think both those things are important, but I think their existence is more important than God's process for making them. Personally, though, I do struggle to fit this idea of God breathing into already existing creatures with the statement that God formed Adam and Eve from the dust. Mm -hmm. Because when Genesis says he formed them from the dust, that sounds like starting with very raw materials to me. Incidentally, in terms of reading in context, raw materials to which we return when we die. Look at Genesis 3, 19, to dust you will return. So if you're returning to the dust of the earth, that sounds like you were made from that stuff in some way. Um, So the the idea that um, God breathed into these pre-existing hominid creatures um, seems to conflict with... um, the idea that Adam and Eve were made as special creations to me. But I think the important thing is we accept Adam and Eve as historical rather than that we agree on God's process in making them. What I love about the image of Adam and Eve being made from the dust is in other ancient Near Eastern myths, they would talk about God making people out of clay. Mm. And has anyone tried, like people, I could make something out of clay quite badly, but I cannot make anything out of dust. Like it, it would just, you've seen dust. It's impossible to make something out of it. As it just shows the creative power of God to to yeah. form people from dust. Mm-hmm. I just think that's a helpful image. Um, Emma, give us a, we've, we've heard sort of a Matt's pleb answer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, I'm only joking. I'm the that's pleb. It, I'm, I'm, I'm the pleb here. I'm the pleb mm-hmm. here. Um, <laughs> let's, let's hear, let's hear your take no, on this. Now for a second pleb answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I find it simpler to believe that God created Adam and Eve from inanimate dust. Yeah. Um, now, there are many Christians, you know, who take that he created them from existing hominids. Um, I think a, a crucial point is that the creation of mankind as spiritual beings having souls and having a relationship with God is inevitably a miraculous process rather than a, a gradual one from earlier hominids. Um, there is indeed a strong evidence of earlier hominids. Mm. I don't personally take them as humans. Um, now, there are Christians who believe that God created a literal Adam and Eve from pre existing hominids, taking the reference to dust as basically stuff of the earth mm. and God breathing into them a breath of spiritual life, which distinguishes them from all other species. 
I, I certainly see that as reasonable, but on the scale I mentioned, I'd place it on the speculative to reasonable end, uh, end of the scale. And I wouldn't consider an impossible stance, but I'd hardly find it a conclusive one to take. Interesting. I'm glad you both thought and read so widely on this subject. And Matt, I'm sorry that I called you a pleb. That wasn't nice. Um, yeah, we're transitioning now, sort of, the faith and science more generally. Um, so, again, this is one of those annoying questions in some ways, but what is the ultimate authority? Scripture or science? What if science, quote unquote, disproves the Bible, Emma? Well, in matters where scripture is clear, then scripture is clearly our definitive authority. Mm. On questions where it's not entirely clear, we need to take care not to insist on a particular position. You see, I think a high view of scripture involves both believing everything the Bible teaches clearly mm. and not insisting on issues that it does not teach clearly. And I mean, John warns against the last few verses of the Bible in terms of warning not to take away from Scripture nor add into Scripture. We need to keep the main things the main things. Yeah, that's helpful. So this isn't something that should divide us. Matt, any additions? Uh, yeah, just to say that the, the historic Protestant cry of the, the Reformation, um, Sola Scriptura, which um, people may have heard, and then the the evangelical idea that the, the scripture is our our great authority in the Christian life. Mm. What that that Christ sola scriptura means is that when compared with the other sources of merely human authority, the Bible is ultimate and it's above all all other sources of authority. Unlike those other sources of authority, it's infallible. What sola scriptura doesn't mean is that Christians should only read scripture. Uh, it doesn't mean that we should forget that God has also revealed himself through creation, his general revelation, which he's graciously made discoverable and, and observable. And as Emir has helpfully said, scripture speaks more or less directly on certain issues. Hmm. For example, as we touched on this previously, it speaks very clearly and totally unambiguously about the physical res resurrection of Jesus. But then to take a, maybe a daft example, it speaks much less clearly about forms of church government, which we can debate as Christians. So for that reason, we should hold our interpretations and understandings of certain issues more or less firmly, depending on how directly and how clearly scripture speaks of them. Where it doesn't speak directly to an issue or the interpretation is less certain. I mean, I, I just do find it really helpful that the, the scheme that the has mentioned about certain reasonable speculative thinking about where our interpretations are on that spectrum where things are more at the speculative end we should obviously insist on them less um, we should be careful not to make dogmatic statements that try to bind people's consciences or act as litmus tests of their spirituality mm. so just as scientist theories and interpretations of the data mm. that they they see in general revelation can be mistaken so can our interpretations of scripture sometimes, especially when the passage of scripture concerned is less direct and less clear. Uh, as for science disproving the Bible, that simply isn't something that we as Christians need to fear because all truth is ultimately God's truth. And when all the facts are clearly known one day on that great day, that there will be seen to be, Emma's touched on this already, no contradiction with scripture. Yeah. It is amazing to think that when we're in glory, you know, we'll have... A bazillion years and, and, <laughs> yeah. and more to, to you see. You up words as well during yeah. podcasts. Yeah. yeah, just to see. Well, it's just true to see yeah. the glories of exactly. creation. Oh, man. So 
we've been talking about the Bible and about creation throughout this uh, podcast. So could you highlight some of the similarities and differences between general revelation, as in creation itself, and then special revelation being scripture? Matt, do you want to go? Yeah, I, I think we have sort of touched on this a fair bit, but it gives a chance to sum up and maybe to clarify our, our terms. So, yeah, yeah, general revelation is the way that God has revealed himself uh, in what he has made, um, and all people can see general revelation. Um, special revelation is speaking of when God reveals himself more directly and specifically, and, of course, we're primarily talking about the Bible, Scripture, when we say special revelation. So um, there's similarities and important differences between the two. In conversation with Emir, he's, um, I think the phrase he's used before is that there are, um, these are both from God and they're both good, but they're also, there's also sort of an asymmetry mm. about them in the sense that they, they apply and work in different ways. Yeah. So the similarities uh, would be that both general revelation and special revelation are ways that God reveals himself. And God always reveals himself infallibly. He, he mm. doesn't make mistakes. So yes, creation has been damaged by the fall, but God is still clearly revealing himself through general revelation, just as he does in scripture. Uh, another similarity would be that they, they don't contradict each other um, and they will finally be seen to be in complete agreement. We might, might not understand how in all the details, but they will be seen to be in complete agreement. Um, third similarity I'd mention is that both are given in the goodness and mercy of God and both in different ways bring him glory. Um, Psalm 19 speaks of this. The differences would be, I mean, there's loads we could list here, but one would be that general revelation reveals to fallen humanity that there is a God and that he is great. But unlike the special revelation of scripture, that general revelation doesn't tell us the things about God we desperately need to know, to relationally know him, that he is a triune God, that he's holy, that he loves us, that he sent his son to save us. So that's a big difference, um, a big distinction. Another one would be that special revelation is specific. It states propositions and truths and commands and promises to us about God and his ways, whereas general revelation speaks in a non-propositional way. So though the beauty and intricacy and the discoverability of nature uh, and the fact that certain things can be rationally deduced from creation, they, they shout loud and clear that there is a creator um, that's true, but general revelation alone is not enough to save. This is so important to stress. Mm. In fact, by itself, general revelation actually condemns rebellious humanity because it leaves them without excuse. I'm mm. just thinking of these words from Romans 1. Um, when Paul's talking about the wrath of God against sinful humanity, and he says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So general revelation, when human beings see it and the, the evidence it communicates to them and yet reject God, it's actually condemning them by itself, where a special revelation speaks saving truth and is what the Holy Spirit uses to bring salvation. Now, you also hear Christian testimony sometimes that God has used general revelation and in conversations with other Christians and the evidence of that to, to draw them to Christ. But ultimately the special revelation of the gospel is what's needed to, to change a human heart. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think I'm, I'm always helped as well. Like Jesus uses general revelation in his teachings. You know, he says, consider lilies, consider the birds. It's not like he's saying, well, let's just look at, you know, what Moses said. He, he uses the natural world to illustrate points about 
about the Lord. Um, Emir, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, Matt's dealt with the question of similarities and differences. Just to mention what he said at the end, that um, I have a friend who's done a lot of mountaineering, mm. including in the Himalayas, and um, um, it led him to just the sense of God's presence mm. in mountains yeah. led him to come to trust him. Um, regarding uh, Psalm 19 and the uh, God's general revelation in creation, I think I just add uh, a couple of points, I think, with regards to its significance. Uh, I'd like to just read the first four verses of the psalm, if I may. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Creation speaks to everyone across the world concerning the glory of God. It declares his glory. At the time David wrote... God has given his word to one small chosen nation of Israel. Yet, David says, he had revealed himself to the whole world. There's a sense, which should not be misunderstood, that there is no one on earth who has not heard of God. Of course, God's revelation in his word, as described in the second half of Psalm 19, gives a much fuller revelation, supremely in the Lord Jesus, that shines far brighter than the created sun and stars. And we need to take his word to everyone, as Matt has emphasized. Mm. And as he said about Ro Romans, in, in Romans, Paul says that we've all been given creation and conscience, and it is sufficient to make us without excuse, because it shows that there is a creator God to whom we owe our existence, and also that we've failed even our own internal standards. So we need to say sorry to him. Now clearly everyone needs God's revealed words of salvation in Jesus. But it's not as if they've had no witness at all. All are without excuse. Now the fact that most people have been taken in by the claim that creation gives strong evidence, if not proof, that God does not exist is a cosmic travesty that yeah. Satan is using to keep people sitting comfortably in darkness. It must be opposed and creation allowed to speak its true message of God's glory. I think that's so interesting, isn't it, how people love watching planet Earth and David Attenborough things and talking about how glorious creation is and they just, they stop there. There's no, it doesn't develop further to think about who is the creator that focuses so much on the creation. Mm. Well, we're rounding into the, the home straight. Um, so if someone was really interested in this topic, are there any places for them to do uh, further reading or listening? Uh, Matt, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll just mention a few. I mean, we are spoiled these days in our generation because there's a lot of stuff um, written on these, these topics, uh, science and faith and on creation evolution. Um, so I just mentioned, I read several years ago now, uh, C. John Collins, Science and Faith. So that's not just about creation, but 
about how we as Christians grapple with these ideas of the connections between science and faith mm. and how ultimately all truth is God's truth yeah. um, and will not be seen to contradict scripture. So science and faith, John Collins, I found very helpful some years ago. More recently, I uh, read a book, Mapping the, the Origins Debate. Uh, Gerald, I think it's Rao, R-A-U. Um, I found that really helpful because before reading that, I kind of thought that there were three or four different Christian positions on creation evolution, for example, you know, people who believe six literal days, progressive creationists who think it's long periods, and then theistic evolutionists. Yeah. And he's basically said, no, no, it's far more complicated than that. <laughs> and people have far more different positions on the different aspects of those theories. And he just maps it out really helpfully. It's not primarily about what he believes, though that comes through, but it shows that Bible-believing Christians can believe the, this whole range of things. It also makes clear a few positions on that spectrum that are very problematic for Bible-believing Christians. Mm. So as a general map of the terrain, I found that really helpful, mapping the origins debate, Gerald Rao. Lastly, I just mentioned um, Wayne Grudem. Shock. <laughs> in his Systematic Theology, or his Shorter Doctrine book, I think. Um, what he Now, Grudem takes the position of um, progressive creation over long periods of time um, and no meaningful sense in which he believes in evolution. But what I think he does do quite fairly is he maps out the other positions and shows how Christians can hold to them and why they hold to them. Mm. So I find uh, Gruden very helpful on this as well. Mm. Amir? Yeah, uh, just just a comment on the, the different positions that there are. I have found it in practice crucial to not join one particular camp, <laughs> but to consider each issue on its own yeah. carefully, read different positions and consider um uh, i just think that's an important principle to add um in terms of what's out there um matt talked about science and faith by jack collins it's c john collins is his uh, name on, on books uh, he's a very helpful writer uh, he trained as an engineer or scientist i can't quite remember but he's also the old testament editor of the esv bible so he's very good understanding of both sides and he is a helpful book. Did Adam and Eve really exist? Who they were and why you should care. Where he discusses the different positions um, while being careful not to exclude positions with which he might not agree. Um, and uh, he's a, a more recent book as well, Reading Genesis Well, Navigating History, Poetry, Science and Truth in Genesis 1 to 11. Um, on the question of time scales, I think John Lennox's book, Seven Days That Divide the World, hmm. is a good one. Yeah. And there's um, much useful stuff from John Lennox also in terms of just handling questions with atheists more generally. And his website is very good on that. Brilliant. I think that's us. We're at the end of end of this road. Good job. Yeah, yeah thanks. Uh, and any questions, people can find you after the service this week. They can, depending yeah. on how technical and scientific, I might send them towards um, <laughs> Professor McDonald, but uh, I'll, I'll do my best as well. It'd be a pleasure to get any questions. I'll make sure I'm not around this week. <laughs> <laughs>